why are you positing this private world? Well, you're positing it because we have a strong intuition that we have one, right? What if that is a sort of illusion? A sort of illusion. I need to be careful here because we certainly have a perspective. We're certainly sensitive to the world. We certainly react to the world in very, very complex ways. Um, we are, we have a point of view on the world constituted by our unique set of sensitivities. Okay, so we definitely have a point of view on the world. I just don't say that my, my view is that none of this is radically metaphysically private. You could unpick all the processes that constitute my point of view, that constitute my subjectivity. Subjectivity itself is objective, if you like. Mm -hmm. It's an objective process of sensitivity to the world, and you could build it artificially. Hi everyone, my name is Balash Kegel. I'm the host of the I Scientist podcast, home of artificial intelligence, soul and the body. And today it's my great, great pleasure to host Keith Frankish, who is a philosopher specializing in the philosophy of mind and a very well-known proponent of the school called Illusionism, which is one of the many schools that deals with the philosophy of mind and consciousness. So before, so how are you, Keith? How are you today? I'm fine, thanks. Thank you for inviting me. So before we get to the first question, which will be about uh, like a general overview, maybe about the different broad schools of consciousness, it's, uh, I would like to explain a little bit why I thought it would be a good idea to bring somebody from this consciousness, uh, philosophy of consciousness to this podcast. So there are several reasons, but one of them is that in AI, we got to the point where people are asking the question whether we are engineering conscious beings. And I think even that we got to that question is a big feat. Whether we do it will depend on what we mean by consciousness. So this is very important for AI researchers to understand what are the different uh, propositions on what consciousness is and how do we detect if we have some, how do we detect if we cross a threshold, etc. So that's the first important reason. The, the second one is more personal, like my program in this podcast and the blog is to unite myself with what I do. So it's the scientist with the science for various reasons. So it's sort of like uniting the first person and the third person point of view and consciousness is right there in the middle of this. I actually don't like to be in what we call performative contradictions. So when I think about consciousness, I would like to have a view which is in, uh, in uh, harmony with what I do. And if I think about what my beliefs about consciousness, I would like to also know what it tells me to do. And the last is a sort of like a meta reason, which is that I find the consciousness debate very interesting from the point of view that we all work more or less from the same data, yet we arrive to very different ideas about what consciousness is and how this works. And it reminds me to the AI discussion of today, not the AI discussion of like, what is this algorithm, how does it work, etc., but 
where is it going? Like there are a lot of AI researchers who came from the same background, went through the same research process in the last 20 years, yet they arrived to very different conclusions on where it's going and what to do about it, whether to push it, whether to stop it, etc. And I have a feeling that behind is there's a lot of personal experience that we don't really explore because we are scientists. We go into the third person view and try to subtract the scientists from the statement. Yet when we talk about the future, it's always a mixture between first person experience and what we know about the world. And so I feel that if we look at a little bit of the consciousness debate, it will help us to also to frame the AI debate. So these are my reasons. And with this, I would like to ask you the first question. So, so maybe my, my viewers are not yet very familiar with the different schools of thought on consciousness and uh, philosophy of mind. So, so how would you paint that, that background to, to your own school? What are the broad directions and maybe some of the sub directions in this, uh, in this beautiful mm. subject? Right. Yes. Well, I've been thinking about quite a bit about this recently because I'm writing an, uh, an introductory book on um, philosophy of consciousness. And there's a standard way of telling the story of dividing up the um, uh, ma of mapping the variety of positions. And it's okay. And it's probably I, it's probably the best way to start and I'll, I'll sketch it for you. But I'm not sure it, it is the it may be the best way to get into the literature, but I'm not sure it's the best way to start thinking about it. Um, there are assumptions, biases built into that way of dividing up the, the topic that, uh, well, I think some of them at least are, 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 are an obstacle to our thinking clearly about it. Uh, I mean, I like to ask people, what do you mean by consciousness? What, what, what do you mean by consciousness? What do you think consciousness is? Well, we use the word in all sorts of ways. Uh, being conscious is being awake, being aware of the world around you. If you're not conscious, if you've been, uh, if you had an anesthetic or suffered a head injury and you're unconscious, then you're not aware of things. So we could say that its simplest consciousness is awareness. Awareness of the world around you, awareness of your own body and awareness of your own mind, awareness of your thoughts and feelings and so on. I'm quite happy with that as a definition of consciousness. Uh, but it rapidly becomes more complicated. Um, we can make a distinction between saying that a person is conscious, I'm conscious now, um, and saying that a mental state is conscious. This is familiar from a long time now, before Freud, but very familiar since Freud, the idea that we have unconscious emotions, unconscious thoughts, fears, and so on, that only manifest themselves, that manifest themselves in our behavior, but not in ways that we're not uh, immediately aware of. We have to observe ourselves as, as another person might observe us to, um, to tell that we have these states. And it's now this is the common currency of modern cognitive science that a lot of mental processing is not conscious. 
I'm not thinking now about the Freudian kind of thing, the thing that's repressed and that's traumatic and so on, but just every sort of running the running the ship, as it were, just getting you around the world. This is done. I mean, the brain's the brain's got a lot to do. You know, it's not just providing this stream of thoughts that you're doing. It's controlling this thing. It's regulating all kinds of bodily systems and hormones and so on. It's a busy thing, and it's doing most of it. Thank goodness, unconsciously. Um, and it's doing a lot of what we might call cognitive processing, psychological processing. It's noticing things, atten switching attention here and there, um, so, um, accessing memories, um, uh, forming expectations, uh, generating action plans. It's doing all kinds of stuff all the time. It's getting you through the world, even when your mind might be elsewhere. So your mind might be walking down a busy street thinking about something I've got to do completely out of the the, the moment, but my brain is taking care that I don't fall over things, that I don't bang into people, that I generally keep going in the direction I want to do, unless I get so distracted that uh, that it um, I completely loses the plot. So a lot of our a lot of our mental activity, if you like, activity in um, what you might call broadly cognitive terms, in terms of information processing, is not conscious. So. What makes some of it conscious? And what is it for that information to be conscious? And now we're asking a rather different question. It's not about what is it for a person to be conscious? It's what is it for a bit of information, for a thought or a belief or perception or experience to be conscious? Now, this is, now we're getting into something a bit, a bit different. We're already, I mean, we've already introduced a theoretical notion here, the notion of mental states being conscious or not conscious. Okay. Um, and this is, I mean, the, there is a history of thinking about the about unconscious mind, but it's not really within the last, uh, I guess, 150 years, but it's been taken really seriously. Um, and so what is it? Um, in particular, what is it for an experience to be conscious? Uh, yeah. so our senses are taking in information about the world all the time, and a lot of this information, I guess, it affects, modulates our behavior without our really being aware of it. Um, Sometimes there's no time to be aware. Some, if uh, something falls from as you're walking down the street, or something falls from above and it's coming down at you, and you, see, you will just duck without any time to think about it. You know, there's no time to be to conscious reflection on it. Okay, and a lot of sensory information seems to be um, to um, affect our behaviour uh, without our actually being aware of it. Um, we change position all the time to make sure that it, to be comfortable. Um, we um, we adjust our pose perhaps to mirror that of the person we're talking to. Um, so we're taking in this information, it's modeling, but, but we're not really attending to it anyway. But what, what about when we really attend to something and we we focus on the experience and we look at something, maybe we take something simple like a patch of color, and we look at it and say, like, I'm now attending to that, I'm experiencing that. And now we start to get into a funny thing that, it, that it, what exactly is happening here? Because and now we use this, this, this phrase that Thomas Nagel introduced in his famous 1974 paper, what is it like to be a bat? We say, it's like something for me to have this experience. It's like something. I don't just know that that, say I'm, I can see a red, the spine of a, uh, of a book over there and it's red. And I, I don't just know that it's red. It's not just that my senses are telling me that's red. I'm actually experiencing it as red. And that has a it's like something, it's, it has a quality to it. Now, you might say, 
well, no, the, the book has a quality to it. Um, it the, it's the book that's read. It's not my experience that's read. But, well, we do a little bit of science and we realize that people perceive the world in different ways. And we realize that what's really just out, what's out there in the world is just a, a certain surface texture on the book that is reflecting light of various wavelengths. Mm. So where does the where does the actual feel of the redness come in? I mean, my eyes are detecting that the particular um, pattern of electromagnetic radiation hitting rods and cones in my retina and it's being processed. And it's, I'm inferring from that that the book is red. But where does the redness of the whole thing come from? That seems to be something that's added to it. It's not just a bit of information about the reflective properties of things in the world. It's a it's a feel, it's a quale, or what it is likeness. <laughs> and so we've gone from it being like something to the, to the experience, the mental state, having a what it is likeness. So you see where we've gone? We've gone from people being conscious to mental states being conscious to mental states uh, telling us about properties in the world, qualities in the world, to the mental states themselves having qualities that I was, it were mental counterparts of the qualities we ascribe to things in the world. So I say that the book is red, but after a bit of thinking about it, I say, well, really, it's my experience that has this red quality. And so we've now got ourselves in a position where we're talking about mental states having some quality, a feel, what its likeness that kind of colors in <laughs> the world around us. Ah, now, now we're in a. We're in you close a... your eyes to actually try to experience it, right? <laughs> well, a, a nice way to experience it is uh, to focus your mind on it is the, 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 to, to drive home this idea that it's all really in your mind is to, is to create an after image of something to look at a bright color, fix your fixate on it for a while, then look at a white wall, and you will see the in, the inverted color. If you focus on a blue square, you'll see a yellow patch on the wall. It's not there in the world. So here it's this, it's, you're having a, an experience with a yellow quality to it. now. Now we've got a we've got a problem. In fact, we've got a hard problem. What are these qualities? Oh, yeah. um, they don't seem to show up in the scientific picture of the world. The scientific picture of the world doesn't find colors, redness, the redness of red on the spine of the book. It finds a certain sort of surface texture and a, that reflects and absorbs different wavelengths of light. Similarly, it doesn't find its redness in here in brain i mean we'll find they find um, the blood vessels that are uh, blood that's red but it doesn't find the redness of my experience of the book or the other colors that I experience uh these seem to be they seem to belong to um almost a different world a private mental world the world of my my subjectivity so it's almost like there's my brain is certainly doing all sorts of very clever things with the with the uh, uh, in processing the, the signals the, uh, the, 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 um, that are coming from my my visual system, it's doing all sorts of clever things with that, and it's it's using that information to guide my responses to the world and, and, and categorize things and to distinguish one from another and report what color it is. But it's also somehow creating, it seems, a private mental world, a world of experience that is only there for me, a world of first person. It's just you. And no one else, it seems, can uh, enter this world. And maybe, how, how do I know that your mental world, your color world, isn't quite different from mine? I mean, we all 
use the same words. We all that we pick out the same colors in the world. We say that's that's red and that's green and so on. And we're distinguishing the same worldly features, the same physical features of the surfaces. But how do we know that that's producing the same quality in, in all of us? As long as it's producing a different quality from all the other colors, uh, that would be enough. So maybe our colors are inverted with respect to one another. But then, then what are these colors for, these mental colors for, if they could be swapped around without making any difference to our behavior? If we'd still identify things reliably as being that being red, that being blue, and so on, even if the inner feel was different. What's the point of that feel at all? What's it there for? If all the what matters surely from an evolutionary point of view is how I respond, how I behave. So now we've talked ourselves into a position, and I say that deliberately, we've talked ourselves into a position where we've got a real problem on our hands of explaining how the brain generates this private world of mental, uh, of, of, of uh, qualities of qualia, of what its lightness is. Um, you see, it was a bit easier in the past because when, you, when modern science was getting going in the, uh, in the uh, um, early 17th century, um, people like Galileo could say, well, look, you know, we could describe the world mathematically. Okay, we can describe all this. The new science was a mathematical science. It posited universal forces and, and applied to everything. And um, everything could be explained as a, uh, in mechanical terms. They would be just structures obeying these universal laws. What about the qualities of things? The, the actual, the smell, the taste, the, 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 not the, the quantities, the quantifiable aspects that could be described by, by, by physics, but the qualities, the feel, what its likeness of the world. Well, Galileo said these are, these, these are properties of the soul. These belong to the soul. Good thing to say. Problem solved. Everybody believed in the soul. Yeah. So you could put there things that were inconvenient for the new scientific picture. You could put there things like free will in the soul. Um, certain kinds of uh, intelligence that didn't seem to be possible to, for, for, uh, for any kind of mechanism to, to reproduce like intelligent language use, put it in the soul. The qualities, put them in the soul. Uh, the trouble was, uh, in the last century or so, people stopped believing in the soul, these scientists did. So they, 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 they still had these, they had, these things had nowhere to live now. Where, what do we do? Do we try and force them back into the physical world and say, yes, you can have free will in the physical world, put it back. You can have intelligent uh, language use, <laughs> which we're uh, in a physical system, which maybe, <laughs> Uh, generative AI is showing you can. Um, and now what about the qualities? Can, can we force those back into the physical world somewhere? Can we find a place in the physical world to force them, put those qualities back in? Because they, 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 they apparently they're real, but science seems to have no place for them. Uh, some brave scientists think, no, we can account for them in, 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 in neuro, uh, neuroscientific terms. It's a brave attempt. Others think, no, we need to go metaphysical on this one, um, that we need to bury them more deeply. And so you get people who are panpsychists and they say, actually, these qualities, these qualities, everything has them, not just us, not just our brain states, everything has them in a very, very tiny degree. And what happens in our brains is that those, the tiny little qualities of the atoms in our brain combine to form the big quality of my experience. So 
you, 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 you bury them there right at the heart of the material world, but they don't really make any difference to it because all the descriptions of the behavior of particles in the brain still stay the same. You've just given them an internal qualitative aspect now. So these, these are ways of responding. I mean, roughly the ways of responding to the hard problem. Um, what I've just described of how the brain creates this problem. This is what David Chalmers called the hard problem of consciousness. It's hard because you can't get a grip on it with standard scientific methods. And because there are also the easy problems, which the easy problems, yeah, yeah. which are the real, which are not easy, but <laughs> uh, which are the really hard problems actually, yes. because you can solve the hard one with doing a bit of metaphysics, and you can do yes. that in your armchair. You know, you don't you do metaphysics; you just sit in your armchair and you think, right, well, where could they be? So, whereas doing <laughs> the the, the, the the, um, the easy problems of working out things like how attention works. Hmm. Yeah, that isn't easy at all. Um, anyway, but there are problems of answering how the brain does the things it does, how it performs the various cognitive functions it performs. How those. Yeah, uh, so you can you look at it from outside with imaging. Exactly, the... you can get, uh, you can do it uh, from a third person perspective. The hard problem is how all of this comes to have an interior first person perspective. Oh. And so the options are, um, you can be a materialist and you can say, or physicalist, and you can say, these things are real, these qualities are real, but somehow they're just regular parts of the physical world. And they're things that science can in principle detect and explain. Okay, you can say that, but, um, well, so it's like saying something like uh, libertarian free will contra-causal free will exists and it's perfectly compatible with everything in science. It, you know. Or you could be a dualist of some sort. You could say, well, these things aren't part of the physical world. These qualities, they're, 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 they're separate from it. Maybe you could say you could be a, a substance dualist like Descartes. You could say that as well as the brain, there is also a separate thing, the mind, that is somehow linked, associated with the brain. And these properties belong, these qualities belong to it. So it's a non-physical thing, and the non-physical qualities belong to it. That's the, 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 the old-fashioned view, the soul view. And at least it's consistent. I mean, if you've got these weird properties, have a weird thing to, to possess them. Um, or you could be a panpsychist, as I suggested. You could say, actually, these things, these qualities, they are part of the material world, but they're not a, an observable part of it. They're, they're the intrinsic nature of the particles that are, whose behavior is described by physics. Physics can only tell you how electrons and quarks and so on behave. It doesn't tell you what it's like to be an electron or quark, what a quark or electron is in itself. It's in and if you could actually they want to know what the, all science will tell you is what it does, how it interacts. If you want to know what it is, well, that's a question for metaphysics. And the answer is, well, it's, it's, a, it's a little conscious thing. It's a little bundle of consciousness, a little tiny speck of consciousness. And our consciousness comes from uh, combining billions of micro consciousness. Okay, so the, then there are many varieties of those different views. Or you could do something a bit more radical and you could say, this whole idea is, uh, we, we went wrong quite early on here. Uh, so, uh, and that we're, thing, we're subject to a something that I call an illusion. People don't like the word. I think it's kind of suits it. It's the idea that these qualities don't really exist. We simply react as if they exist. We think they exist. We've convinced ourselves they exist. It's our way of um, 
conceptualizing our own minds, a sort of story we tell ourselves about our own minds. They're more like fictions, virtual entities, um, illusions. They're, our claims about these qualities are not doing nothing. They are tracking something. We can get into what they might be actually tracking, what they actually might do. When you say you're in pain, I'm not suggesting that when you're in pain, you're, you're wrong or that nothing, is, nothing important is happening to you. But I'm saying that conceptualizing it as a private quality presented in a private mental world, that that's the bit where you've gone wrong. So that pain is much more physical and real than that. Let me interrupt you here because I yes. will introduce a little bit of why I started, let's say, this mini series of unconsciousness with you, mm -hmm. among all the others. Uh, it's so when I hear illusionism, mm -hmm. there are all the, all the other schools. Some of them are find silly. Some of them are find more interesting and uh, thoughtful. But when I hear illusionism, I get angry. The reason why I get angry is because the word illusionism, and you mentioned that sometimes uh, people criticize you for, for the wording, and, and maybe is that, is because I hear that something that I really feel that I'm the most real thing that I can perceive is an illusion. And it's almost like, you, you, you try to deny that feeling of pain or anger or whatever, or the or redness okay. of the apple. And, but then I look at the debate and I realize that this is not what you're saying. You're saying illusion, so my pain is real. There is an illusion of something else. And this is where I get lost. Yeah, okay. So I actually went through uh, your Beautiful. So you have a podcast with um, with uh, Philip Goff, right? That's right. Yes. And there is one episode. I think it was very early on where you you actually didn't have any guest. You just or you uh -huh, had a yes. moderator and and you did a presentation. So Philip is a, a psychist and yeah. you are an illusionist. It's like almost like the two extreme versions of of schools in consciousness. And I, I found it very succinct that mm -hmm. presentation and. So what I'm thinking about that we could go through, I have all the your bullet points, you don't need slides, but I can just raise those steps in the argument that fantastic. you mentioned there, and then we just riff on this. That's fantastic. I mean, uh, that, that would be a great way of making sure I don't wander off as I do. But let me see, can I just say two things, two mm. preliminary things, just to, just to um, uh, make sure we've, we've got some uh, sort of ground uh, rules in place. One, if you tell me you're in pain, and I've no reason to suspect that you're um, uh, acting or trying to deceive me or something, I'll believe you, and I'll think that you're in a very, very significant state that matters a lot, and I'll be concerned about it, and I'll think that if I, you know, if I can do anything to help, I should do. I think it'd be very wrong for anybody to... I, I treat claims about being in pain exactly the same as everybody else treats them, okay? Yes. Um, uh, and the same goes for all other experiences. I think that when we report our experiences, we are reporting real things that really matter in the ways that people think they do, okay? I'm questioning a certain theoretical view, perhaps quite a natural one, perhaps not quite a natural one. It's, it's not true. It's natural once you've got into a certain way of thinking of what those states actually are. And I'm saying that you're dead right that you're in pain. You're dead right that it's horrible. But you may be wrong about what it actually is. 
Now, let's give an example. This is the second point. You, you say, and people say, well, how could I possibly be wrong about this? It's the thing I'm most immediately aware of. Okay, well, just look at something right now, something colored, say, in front of you. Now, isn't it obvious to you that that thing that you're looking at there is colored, that that thing, say it's red, like the book I can see there, that that is red and that the red is there, out there on the, on the spine of the book, several feet away from me. And isn't that perfectly obvious to you? That, that is not an illusion, that that really, really is red. And you maybe check from different angles. But science says, no, it's not really, not really colored at all. It's just a pattern, just a surface texture of things and lights bouncing off it and so on. Uh, that's not really red at all. And most people go, yeah, okay, oh, I'm happy with that. Uh, now they've got themselves a problem. If they just said, it, it, now they've got themselves a problem because they've got to put the red somewhere because they're convinced the red exists, but they've been happy to say that it's not out there. And now they've got this thing here. Now, why not just stop at that point if you really insist that the red exists and say, no, it really is out there. What people don't, but people don't do that. They say, no, okay, it's really in my mind. And it really, really, really is in there. You can't tell me that's an illusion. Well, you accepted that it was an illusion that it was out there. So, okay, so I suggest that maybe it's in my chair, the redness instead of, you know, in my head, you know? Once you've given up the naive view that it's out there painted on the world, and all bets are off. Come on, you know. Um, anyway, that's, yeah, my, that's my answer, like I am, I'm, I'm not a philosopher of, of a mind, but I, I'm attracted a lot to what Mark Soames calls uh, mm. dual aspect monism, mm. where he says that the the the, the redness of the feeling of redness but maybe pain would be an easier to so mm -hmm. i will actually force you to, to talk more about pain and redness but we can do it with the redness too that there's the redness out there mm -hmm. and the redness that i mm -hmm. feel is just two views of the same same things one internal which so he's, he's as you said he's a very much on a functional base so he, mm. he uses consciousness to explain how uh an autonomous being, self-creating being, exists in the world and what it needs to, to persist to exist mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. consciousness evolves in that way. And so he, he would say that it's red, it's objectively there, the physical qualities of the redness, but the feeling is what the redness means for me as an existing living organism yeah, I'm, which is relevant for my existence, I'm, something like this. I'm, I haven't talked to Mark about this, and I would like to, because I think that um, that his view is actually very, very close to mine. Exactly. Uh, so this is, ex this is exactly uh, actually when I saw aspects, him. The dual yeah. aspects here, they're not, as I understand it, and I may be wrong because I, it's a while since I read the book, so I read, the dual aspects, as I understand it, are not physical and non-physical. They're two physical aspects. There's the information. There's the. Um, there's the. the um, yeah, I wouldn't call it information because for the information you already need a first-person viewer. But the thing, yeah, let's call um, it. Uh, well, the two aspects are the physiological and the psychological, as I understand it. But they're both. He thinks they're both physical aspects, and I think, and I, 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 I really don't want to say too much because I may be misinterpreting, and I don't want to do that. But if the idea is that what's happening is that we are internally monitoring, internally monitoring certain um, uh, 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 
the informational processes that are happening in our, in our, in our brains, decision, processes of making decisions under uncertainty. And we're internally monitoring them and representing them to ourselves. And that that's what we call the field. I'm absolutely no problem with that. There's definitely internal monitoring going on. And that's the source of what, but what, what I'm, uh, what I claim is illusory is the idea that there's something further occurring. There's something essentially private. There is a uh, something that is in, not capturable in the language of science. And I take it that everything that Mark wants to talk about is. There is no completely hidden. So we, we'll, we'll get to this in at one so of your, your yes. bullet points, but. Uh, but you're completely correct on this. I saw him once debating a panpsychist and uh, mm -hmm. illusionist, and I found that his view was compatible with both. Yeah. He is not a panpsychist for sure, mm. but it seems to me that panpsychist just adds. You can consider it's adding something to what he's saying, assuming something more than what he's saying. In any case, it's it's uh, perhaps not not the good direction to go into. I just that was one of the reasons I wanted to understand illusionism because, as you say, it seemed to me that there are very small differences. I think it, 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 this is fascinating because there are so many ways in which the <laughs> the differences can seem huge and then they can seem relatively minor in some places. <laughs> some places. Um, there is something that I am absolutely firmly adamantly rejecting and declaring to be illusory and it's the thing that's supposed to, that's supposed to constitute the hard problem okay the, the subject of the hard problem the thing that okay i mean one way of capturing it let's do what you said and go through the things but let me just 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 um one of the standard arguments in, in uh, for a non-physicalist views of consciousness is that you can imagine a physical duplicate of uh, a conscious being that uh, isn't conscious, that you can imagine all those physical, all yeah, the processes zombie, that yeah. can be described from a neuroscientific perspective, and I take it this would include everything that Mark wants to talk about. All of those processes occurring without consciousness. So consciousness, I think he would deny it. I, I think I know, and that is essentially, the, the, the illusion is that there is something extra that could be missing. That's the illusion. Now, for many people, that is the very heart and soul of consciousness. That is the what it is likeness that kind of lights up the whole um, the, the neural activity. There's, there's all this neural activity churning away in the dark, doing all the wonderful things of guiding us around the, the world and making us talk like this, but it could all be going on in the dark, as it were. And this extra thing is what lights it up. And there's this metaphor of an inner light is it's very, um, influential, I think, and persuasive. It's a metaphor. Everyone would say it's a metaphor, but still, it's one that kind of grips people's imagination. And the idea is that all that the activity could happen without the intrinsic light. And my claim is that that in, that that mm, you know, light, the intrinsic light, is an illusion. That really, there's just the activity and the activity monitoring itself, yeah, yeah, yeah. and levels of activity of, of self-monitoring, and, so, and that's it. Yes, and I think I found before we go there. I found this is very important because I feel that one of the fears in AI is that we create such a thing. I call it the high functioning zombie. Mm -hmm. Because for example, the, the you know the singularity, the, the paperclip metaphor or allegory is about a, a being that has a goal 
that very narrow goal and it's super intelligent to execute that narrow goal but it's dumb to see that that goal is destroying the world around it and it's it's not necessarily a zombie but it seems to me like somewhere like the root of it is, is a zombie that's unconscious and not not aware of the larger context in which it lives in. Well, this is where the word zombie can be very um misleading i think and i think a lot of scientists think that when philosophers talk about zombies they're imagining a creature that is somehow impoverished in its capabilities that isn't noticing certain things or caring about certain things or responding appropriately to certain things not taking context into account not caring about other people's feelings that is somehow missing stuff that we see and notice and react to that isn't the idea at all uh, a zombie uh, a zombie human would be indistinguishable from a human on every possible test you could do every possible psychological test every possible interaction you could have with it it would be perfect it, what it's lacking is something that is not objectively observable it's something that is yes okay now, so yeah it's not the same kind of zombie i'm talking about it, it's sure, not yeah. exactly. and yeah, the, yeah. the problem for ai it, it, once if you conceptualize consciousness in that way then as far as ai goes you are in the, completely in the dark because there is no inference from your having created something with a certain set of capacities to its having consciousness to its having the inner light being on maybe the inner light suddenly comes on one day when you do some tiny minor little adjustment to something maybe that's enough to switch it all on and suddenly it becomes conscious I'll, or maybe you create everything exactly the same as for for, for, for a, a, a high functioning um for, for a human being and it doesn't come on you can't know you can only it knows and it can't tell you because anything it tells you will be a product of the functional processes that you know about so it might be saying i am conscious or i'm not conscious but still that's not revealing whether the inner lights are on it's only revealing its dispositions to react to questions and respond you've got to see that the thing that i'm denying here is something really really weird it's it's only i think for a lot of scientists that find the term illusionism unattractive because they think well i'm denying something kind of something um uh that they some capacity some uh, ability some thing that could be um uh, detected and measured and quantified and so on i'm not i'm detecting I'm, de I'm denying some precisely that it escapes all of that and it's it's really only philosophers who, who take this seriously so in a way illusionism is a term directed at philosophers um it leaked from the lab like ai <laughs> That's a good, that's a good, so I like now that. you have to explain. <laughs> I, I, I will be quite happy to give up the term. Yes, I do see it as a sort of, um, what's the word, like antibiotic measure or something, um, uh, or vaccine. And once, once we've cured the disease, then maybe we can adopt a, a, a different language. But it is in the fact that people, and this is, of course, how you can go to panpsychism. Because once you've detached consciousness from all psychological functions, you've conceptualized it as something that isn't a matter of any psychological functions being performed when you've de-psychologized it as separately then of course it's perfectly coherent to suppose that inanimate things might have it it's perfectly coherent to suppose that electrons might have it but i think Pensakis would say that all those things like an electron has a psychology they don't no they wouldn't no, no you don't you don't see how how weird philosophers are in the way they think but scientists don't don't see how how weird philosophers are no they don't they don't think any psychology is needed 
it's the intrinsic nature of the thing itself. It is what they take literally that line of Nagel's, what it is like to be that thing, not what it is like to process information to carry out certain um, uh, information processing, it's what it's like to be it. And all you need to have it is to be it. But that's what I, I would call psychology. It, just because be it's it. internal processes. No, no internal processes right. needed. An electron could be completely simple. Nothing, it's just a little blob of consciousness. Nothing else. That's the uh, idea. This is this is a detour, and I think I should remember that a zombie. Remember that a, a zombie is psychologically, in terms of all psychological functions, identical to a human. Mm -hmm. And what it's what we're supposed to have is something extra that is not a matter of changing, altering any psychological function in the slightest. It's a really weird idea. Anyway, yeah, and I mean, it, it solves the turning of the light on the light because the line is always turned on, basically. <laughs> well, it doesn't completely solve it, you see, because there's a question of when these, when these micro-consciousnesses combine to form a macro-consciousness. Now, one option would be to say, well, they always do. Every set of, of micro-particles forms a micro-consciousness. So, you know, the, 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 those in my brain and those in one of the moons of Jupiter also combine to form, they all combine to form a, a consciousness. It's kind of like taking it to absurdity. Um, the other is, well, so what you want to say then is, well, they, what you want to say is you want to re-psychologize it now and say they only combine to form macro consciousness, consciousnesses in entities that have the right psychology. Mm -hmm. But you just depsychologized it. So why not say they come together in a rock? Yeah. So me personally, I would not. I don't care whether a rock is conscious or not. It doesn't look to me very useful concept to consider a rock. That's conscious. the kind of concept we're operating with. You see, I know, kind of I know, I know, I know. And that's why we need but, to get rid of it and kick it out but of the. Just to put the combination problem back a little bit, we know that. I mean, it depends. If you think like mono singular cells are conscious or not but if you think they are and if you look at you know videos of a neuron trying to find his friends or a, or an amo amo amoeba hunting they look conscious like from the behavior for to me and if you accept it then who are we because we are made up from of cells tissues organs like there's a hierarchy of things that seem to be conscious on their own and somehow they combine into my consciousness. So this problem is pragmatically, scientifically solved at, at a certain in me. Mm. So they just take probably, I would say, psychics take this as a and project it onto everything. Uh, I think I think they're more radically uh, their view of consciousness is more radically non-functional, non-psychological than that. Um, I mean that's kind of plausible. I'm. I'm um, I mean, one way of putting it is, do you think that psychology, psychological functioning is a mere indicator of consciousness, something that happens to be correlated with consciousness? Or do you think that that kind of is it, that that's the whole story, that cert, um, certain psychological processes, or cognitive processes, or even um, um, uh, neural processes, actually are consciousness but that is the story about consciousness it's doing these things that consciousness is a matter of performing certain functions being sensitive to the world in certain complex ways and reacting 
to the world in certain complex ways. And it's that bundle of sensitivities and reactions that is consciousness. So when you see a creature that's displaying an appropriate, a similar sort of sensitivity and reaction, you think that's probably conscious. And or do you think that's, that sensitivity, that cluster of sensitivities and reactions is merely a sign of something hidden inside that is the real consciousness, the private, subjective, inaccessible world of the thing itself? Now, if you conceptualize in the second way, you're never going to know. There's no test you can do because you cannot do experiments on private worlds. Yes, that's why it's not science. It's philosophy. And they don't explain, <laughs> and they don't, it doesn't explain anything because you've explained uh, all the actual processes in terms, in, 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 say, in neuroscientific terms. You've explained all the reactions, all the sensitivities and the reactions you've explained. So why are you positing this private world? Well, you're positing it because we have a strong intuition that we have one, right? What if that is a sort of illusion. A sort of illusion. I need to be careful here because we certainly have a perspective. We're certainly sensitive to the world. We certainly react to the world in very, very complex ways. Um, we are, we have a point of view on the world constituted by our unique set of sensitivities. Okay, so we definitely have a point of view on the world. I just don't say that, my, my view is that none of this is radically metaphysically private you could unpick all the processes that constitute my point of view, that constitute my subjectivity. Subjectivity itself is objective, if you like. Hmm. It's an objective process of sensitivity to the world, and you could build it artificially. And yes. you wouldn't worry about whether you've, you know, don't worry about whether the inner lights have come off, come on, worry about whether it's passing all the cycle, the, the, you know, do batteries of psychological tests on it see what it can discriminate how finely it can discriminate things how it can use that information to modulate its responses make those see if it can do higher level monitoring of its can it can it monitor its own is it sensitive to its own sensitivities can it react to its own reactions batteries and batteries of tests worry about those don't worry about whether some mysterious inner light has come on because that will you won't be able to answer it and it makes no difference. Yeah, I think it's just assumed, we... assumed that it's only once this is, uh, yeah. But anyway. Yeah, okay, so let's do the yeah. thing you said. Let's do the thing, yeah, because uh, I think it will be more yeah. more detailed and we can dig into yeah. some of okay. the, the things more. So the first point you had was that there is no magical awareness of anything. Mm. That awareness requires a mechanism which can be representational. Mm -hmm. So what I'm wondering here is what, what do you mean by mechanism? Because for me, the mechanism, the word, again, invokes that it's physical, it's machine-like, controls, maybe. I didn't mean anything very heavy-duty by it. I meant some... Uh, uh, I'm going to give a definition of that. Uh, some, let's say, some evolved system. Evolved... Uh, well, if it's representation, some evolved representational systems and systems that is sensitive to certain features, the features that we're, 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 we're interested in, and, uh, and uses that information to modulate some kind of response to it. Now, it could be, you know, it's, uh, it, I don't need, need to be mechanistic in any very clunky sense. I mean, everything, I guess, everything that biology talks about as a mechanism in that sense i suppose not in the representational sense but in this sense of being some evolved mechanism that is that performs some function okay some, some evolved system that performs some function i guess that would 
maybe that's not a bulletproof definition, but that's all I'm thinking of. So anything from the uh, subcellular level right up to um, huge neural uh, networks and systems. And so you mean that this mechanism is detectable from outside? Uh, potentially. I mean, it, it, it's it's detectable from the outside in what sense? I mean, it could be you, you, with brain scans with whatever. Yeah, you point to it. Yeah, this yeah, is it's, it's some it's some it's it's, it's a, a concrete bioloidoid artificial system that does a particular job. That is, it's a, let's say it's a it's a sensor. And it and its outputs are then used to control something, a sensor and a control system, something like that. That's how, um, if you want, if you've got a either a, a, a biological system or a an artificial system, and you want it to be sensitive to some particular feature of the world that's important for it, then you've got to build something. By the yes, by so natural that, selection, that, that, that thing has to go through its, uh, let's say, Markov blanket, if I use Christoph's term. Uh, yeah, yeah, I suppose, I, I guess that's right. I'm, I'm, I'm not terribly comfortable with, with the terminology here, so I don't want to start putting it in that, but um, because I'll, I'll, I'll get it wrong. But, um, but you need, it needs some sensor that is selectively responsive to whatever the feature is, and the outputs of that sensor need to be used to, to modulate some sort of response. I mean, that's Okay. More or less definitional of what it is for for something to be. Okay, okay, okay. So the next point was that uh, the same goes for for self awareness, yes. which is a tricky concept because it's like the thing looking at itself, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's true for mental states. Yeah. And then you say, and that was that uh, that I wrote down. It wasn't on the slides, but you said it that I could have some emotions that I don't detect. Mm, absolutely. This is this is. And that's tricky yeah. to me. Well, isn't this this is I mean, this is sort of Freudian stuff, isn't it? I mean, this idea is it's it's very attractive, I think, to, to people. The idea that they could have um, they could have some anger against somebody that they haven't um, uh, uh, that is somehow repressed. But I mean, more than that. There's, uh, look, let's take let's take a um, let's take a, 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 a non-human animal. Non-human animals, I assume, have all sorts of mental states. They certainly have experiences and uh, have desires, I assume they have things they want, and they have memories and beliefs. Uh, I guess they have emotions. Certainly, my, my, my cat here, oh, he's asleep. He, he certainly has emotions. Um, uh, he could show you some if you come over. Anyway, um, do they know they have them? Do they think no, to themselves? No, no, that's like metaphorical society. I don't yeah. think so. So, so, so just having the state isn't uh, so. And Mixy here, when he's when he's hungry, I don't think he thinks to himself. Hmm, but but it, it's, 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 maybe it's a clear because that was one of the next point. Like uh, you can't know that you are in a certain state simply by being, by being in, in it. it. But yeah. it depends what you mean by knowing. Well, what do you mean by no? <laughs> Turn it back. What? Well, I mean, you would need. I would have thought that to know that you're in a state, you need to do something like I, I just said. Uh, for the first order sensitivity, you need to be sensitive to its presence and be able to. So you need to have some reliable information about its presence and be able to use that information to modulate some response to it. But doesn't the cat do this? They, it, it's just angry and it's. Uh, yeah, the, that's right. So I would say example. that it's in that sense. In that sense, it knows it. It cannot articulate, cannot talk about it like we do. Exactly. So in that sense, you could say that its emotion is not conscious. It's not consciously reflecting 
on its moat. I mean, I, th I think I would perfectly happy. Yes, to it's on saying that cats, yeah. I would say that the I would say that the cat is aware of the world, and in that sense, conscious, conscious of the world. But I would say that it's not conscious of its own mental states. In that sense, it's not a, reflecting on its own mental states. That doesn't but mean if, that its mental states uh, don't matter. I mean, it's so, pain. So because... I think this is this is the this is where it gets hurtful because it's like the, the anger is real. You agree? Hmm. The action on the, uh, the the cat acts on the anger is also real. Mm -hmm. The cat cannot talk about mm -hmm. that it's mm -hmm. angry, and we can, and there is a difference. That's a big difference, uh, a very big difference, because we can start to articulate our anger in different ways we can start to use metaphors and and um, comparisons and we can talk about the, the degree of anger and we can say it's like a heat and we can start to conceptualize it and build up this whole narrative about our anger okay it's not just yes. that there's this bodily response yes, and some sort it's... of cog there may it may be that emotion does involve some cognition of the bodily response, but I would still say that it's 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 all first order. It doesn't involve any meta awareness uh, in 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 the cat of of um, of its own um, uh, uh, total emotional state. Um, sorry, that was a bit obscure. Um, but we in, in being able to primarily being able to talk about it, I think the crucial thing is is is, is the way that we elaborate and build up this you see ah uh, sounds gonna i'm gonna keep going off okay. the way we build up this notion of our inner lives our lives are naively as it were naively our awareness is all outwardly focused okay the colors are out there the sounds are out there the well, pains it's, are I would say it's, it's transparent more yes, than yes. Elsewhere. Yeah, well, the, the, the internal that, can be also transparent but that yes but even transparent implies that there's two things here. There's an inner and outer, and it just happens. Yes. We're just out there, and we're living... Uh, the, the cat, I assume, and us, we, most of the time, are just living out there. Okay. The, the qualities that we're in touch with are around us, in our bodies. Okay. The idea that they are somehow bundled up in here in some private world, that is something you only get when you start reflecting on this, trying to articulate your responses to the world, trying to build up a narrative of how it built up in you. And then it uh, and it was it was it was kind of like, a you know, I had to express it. And it was and you you reach and other people supply metaphors for uh, that you can use. And you talk about the intensity, the heat of the anger, the heat of the anger. Um, um, the more cold passion, and we we have a whole social. Um, yes, we build stories around it, but we do this with the external world too. Yes, absolutely. We kind of construct it for ourselves, to some extent. You know, we, we construct the social world. We pick out the bits that are really important to us in the social world, and we ignore, and then in, in the in the material world, and ignore the bits that aren't. And similarly, we tell a story about our inner lives. It's so so in, 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 the, in this sense, what's the difference between, say, money and anger? Like money, well, in certain views, it's also virtually doesn't exist, but it yeah. does exist because it has an effect on reality and on us. Well, yes. I mean, I mean this, this, this is maybe a good point to mention. My favorite um, um, uh, analogy for illusionism, which is, is, is from Daniel Dennett. I mean, I should just acknowledge that, you know, what I am doing is, is really just trying to um, 
represent really some ideas that then then it has been presented for a long time and trying to do my own little bit to to um promote a perspective that i think has been unjustly and uh, uh unjustly neglected or undervalued although dennett himself is, not, is certainly not undervalued but i think people feel they can dismiss his many people feel they can dismiss his views and and they, they're wrong they should be um they should be taking uh, notice of them and they should be realizing quite just how salutary they are anyway the analogies with money and it's um uh so then it talks about the dollar bill the, the dollar bill for writing from an american perspective americans think the dollar bill has a real value it's real money and when they go to another country they see that they know that they can exchange dollar bills for euros or yen or whatever it might be but they don't feel that's real money that's these are just like these are just like these paper tokens that people exchange and can get things for but they're not real money it only becomes real money when you change it back into dollars which have it intrinsic value then it uses the word vim from the latin for force vis force so they have their own intrinsic value. And in a sense, that's right, because Americans are used to using the dollars. They've got a sense of the potency of the dollar, of what you can do with a dollar or with enough of them. And they've, they've in their society, this dollar is powerful. It does things. They haven't experienced that with yen or yes. euros. They've only used them on rare occasions as substitutes for the thing that they're used to using. So they kind of project a, an intrinsic value on the dollar that other things don't exist. Now it's a projection, it's not really there. And they, if they reflected on it, they'd realize that it's not there. It's simply a matter of the, you know, the, what you can exchange it for. And that's how illusionists want to think about the essential nature of experience. That really experience is a matter of a cluster of sensitivities and reactions of how you are engaged with the world at this moment. Pain is a way of being engaged with the world, of being gripped by some state of your body and being pushed and pulled around and responding to that state in various ways and it's the, the, the world has got a hold on you and it's tugging you and pulling you and it's that dynamic thing that is the pain but we project a kind of essence into the state the awfulness of the pain the pain itself that we somehow imagine is separable from all those as it were dynamic transactions with the world that's the bit that's illusory. So that's what you call phenomenological property of pain. Phenomenal property. The phenomenal, phenomenal property. Phenomenal it's, it's property. To, the, the reason this this notion of phenomenal consciousness was introduced by, uh, uh, well, yes, it was introduced by Ned Block with, with a contrast a contrast to a functional notion of consciousness, access consciousness, which is about information being available to other brain systems and information is conscious in the, in the access sense if it gets to have a lot of influence the kind of stuff i was just talking about if it gets to push and pull you about and do things with you that's like the exchange value of the dollar phenomenal consciousness is meant to be the intrinsic feel of the experience like the intrinsic value of the dollar and that's the thing that i'm saying is illusory. and i'm not saying saying that it's illusory. i'm not saying that it talk about it is meaningless not saying that talk about the intrinsic value of the dollar isn't meaningless it expresses a sense of what you can do with a dollar if you're an american it expresses the potency of the dollar but that potency isn't something that exists independently of the whole economic structure and the whole in which it's embedded similarly the essence of the experience if you like talk about the essence of an experience is a way of gesturing at the nature of the dynamic interaction between you and the environment 
it's a kind of shorthand. It's I can't sum up all the complexity of what's happening in my current direction. So I say it hurts. It's a pain. God sake, you know what I'm talking about. I don't have to go. I can't go into the details of, of all that's happening in here and all the, you know, the, the complex patterns. I know nothing about the neuron firings that are involved in the. So uh, okay, so so this is what you call illusion that this mm. uh, that we misrepresent. Exactly, it's a misrepresentation. The same way as, as we do it with an optical illusion or, or the stage magic you, you mentioned. Exactly. It's, it's pointing at something very real, very powerful, but misrepresenting it. Essentially misrepresenting something very complex and dynamic as something very simple and intrinsic. And that, uh, partly because that's how we can get a grip on talking about it. But isn't all representation are like this? Yeah, all representation is selective, distortive, and and relative to some function. Exactly. It's, so it's it's just applying to introspection the 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 view that everyone accepts with regard to perception. Everyone accepts that perception, exteroception, is selective, distorting, and adapted to our e evolutionary needs. Okay. So yes, but... everyone accepts that. Now, introspection is if you like, self-monitoring, monitoring of your own brains. We know that, that happens all the time. Yeah, and it's an why, important... why would that be any different? Why would that not be selective, distorting, and adapted to our needs? It, we, we don't need to know everything that's happening in here. And it would be, you know, it would be actually be incredibly unhelpful to know when you see something all about all the complex activity. No, but, 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 but wouldn't you say that then all perception is illusory? All perception is illusory. Yeah. Uh, well, it, <laughs> because it has all these properties, like the, the, the way I, so, so as, as a living being now, like I come back as a, as a human, not as somebody, you know, who are in this discussion with you, but mm -hmm. I, mm -hmm. I as a being in this, in your sense, I feel like you, you need to have a concept of, of useful illusions and non-useful oh, illusions. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. I think this and then, then we need, so we, we need to. That, that separation is more important in a certain sense than saying that uh, the world is out there and what we see is, of course, not the world, but our perception of it. No, we, like a... we know, what we see is the world. We don't see our perception of the world. It's not like there's the world and then there's yes. something in here that we see that is our perception. But, but we need we it through a filter. We see the world. We see it through a filter. Yeah. Yes, we see it. Yes. We, we see aspects of the world. We see aspects yeah. of the world that are it's useful for us to see. <laughs> um, uh, we see patterns that it's useful for us to notice, patterns that are significant, that afford us some kind of action. We see affordances. We see a world of meaning. And I'm just applying that to introspection. I'm saying that we're not going to see everything that's happening inside our own minds, inside our own brain, assuming you don't think that there's a soul or something yes. distinct from the brain. Okay. You're going to see bits. You're going to be aware of bits that are significant for you. And they're going to be selected out of the mass of stuff. You're going to see high-level patterns in the complex uh, uh, dynamic interaction between you and the world, you're going to see high level patterns in them that are significant so that you can remember them and you can talk about them and you can say to your, when I tasted that, it was awful. Don't taste it again. I had this awful reaction to it. Don't do it. Very useful to do that. Um, and so you conceptualize it as a thing that had an intrinsic awfulness to it, the experience. It's a useful way of talking about it. It's okay. While it gets really, harmful is when you start building a um, uh, a metaphysics on top of this and asking what these this awfulness is and how it's related to the physical processes in your brain and whether 
maybe atoms have a bit of awful, uh, experience a bit of awfulness and so on. It's, you've taken a useful simplification that the, that the brain yes. has for its self-monitoring purposes and turned it into the basis of metaphysics. And the, the, the thing that under, underlies all this, and that this brings us back to where you were, we were talking about mechanisms of awareness, is this. The key claim um, that underwrites certain strong forms of phenomenal realism and that underwrites arguments for non-antiphysicalism is that the nature of our consciousness, of our conscious experiences, the phenomenal qualities, are revealed to us. That we know them in an immediate way that involves no kind of mechanism that doesn't, that isn't uh, susceptible to any kinds of distortion or misrepresentation. We are directly acquainted with the qualities of our own experience. We know them for sure. And indeed, it's often said that this is the only knowledge that is certain. Everything else is inferential from our knowledge of the qualities of our own experience. So we're sort of in this world of appearances, this world of experiences, and that's all we know for sure and everything else is speculation. But, now, but I would say pain is, is revealed to you like that, not its yeah. qualities, but pain itself. No? The, the, what is revealed to you is that, that well, I don't think anything is revealed to us in this way, because this kind of revelation is a relation between a subject and an object that is not mediated by any kind of representational mechanism. There's no story about how the subject, or whatever the subject in this case is, gets to know about the object. It's just kind of magic. Now, if the subject here is some brain system or collection of brain systems, and the object here is some brain states activity in pain centers, how this gets aware of that without there being some mechanism involved, some transmission of, ner of nerve impulses, I have no idea. If you're talking about an immaterial soul that's somehow transparently aware of all of its own, well, maybe, but then we're back into this thing. If you're talking about, uh, about a natural, about an evolved system, any kind of information, any kind of knowledge it has, including knowledge of its own states, has got to be somehow the product of some kind of mechanism, some sort. So, so can, can we say that basically pain is the primary thing that is there and then everything on top of it, when we reason about it, we try to suppress our immediate reaction, stuff like this, that's illusory, that's what well, you no, well, no, Look, pain is, <laughs> when you're in pain, something drastic has happened usually, um, there's some sort of damage, yeah. disturbance, and you are gripped by a huge wave of reactions. Yeah. Okay, physiological, your heart's beating faster, which again, you're monitoring all sorts of physiological changes, which you're also monitoring. Okay, so your body's in a, you're, you're torn about, you have strong desire for this to stop. Your, your attention is trapped by the thing. You can't think about anything else. You strongly desire for it to stop. You perhaps feel sick and that you're monitoring that too. You're sweating, you're monitoring that. All sorts of stuff is happening in your, your huge raft of effects. Maybe it's conjuring up bad memories. Maybe it's conjuring up fears. What's going to happen? Am I going to be able to, is this going to, disable me permanently what you know your grip like wave of stuff is breaking over you okay and you don't know the details of all the processes that have involved in all this of course you don't you just know that you're detecting enough of it to know that it's that it's, it's 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 a horribly aversive sort of reaction and it's the state you don't want to be in and you want it to cease as, as soon as possible and you call it pain and you say i'm in pain okay and maybe because we have ways of it, 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 the doctor could say, is it a shooting pain or is it a stabbing pain? Is it intermittent? Is it this and that? And you can start trying to narrow it down a bit. 
and be more specific, although often it's hard to do so. Is it stabbing? Is it? Uh, it's well, not one on ten. Yes, possible to answer that. Often, I mean, you can say, well, it's it's not ten, but it's. I don't know. Nah, he's... <laughs> so, so now, yeah. So we, we, we um, so, so where was I going? So um, and we, well, we have this idea that in addition to all these complex and highly aversive reactions, there is something else, the pain itself, which is something additional to all of those. And is not uh, that all of those could happen, all of those reactions, all that huge weight of reactions could happen without the pain. And that's where I think the confusion comes in. That's your sort of, it's like the value of the dollar, you know, uh, that, that, that is uh, somehow additional to all its buying power. It's, you don't need it, it's not doing any work. If you stripped away all the reactions, if you said, okay, I have, if the, if the two things are supposed to be separate, you should be able to dissociate them. Okay, so let's say I'm in pain, but now we'd gradually strip away the reactions. I'm no, my heart's no longer beating fast. Uh, I'm no longer sweating. My attention is no longer gripped by this thing in my leg, say, where the, where the pain is. And, and I can think about other things. I no longer, I, I'm aware that something's happening in my leg, but I no longer desire it to stop. Uh, if you ask me, is it bothering you? I'll say, no, not really. It's, um, I know something's happened there. I've been stabbed or something, but it's not bothering me. Um, uh, I'm no longer worried about it. I'm no longer, I feel anxiety about it. You take away all the reactions hmm. and you've taken away the pain. Um, hmm. uh, whereas if pain was something in addition to all that complex, when I say reactions, I mean internal reactions as well. I mean, the physiological, the psychological, the, all kinds of huge wave of them that I described. Take away those and there's nothing left. That is the pain. The illusion is to think that the pain is something more than that. And that you might, and this is why I, I, I think this, one reason I like this is that I think it's a, it, it's, the, 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 the viewer that I'm opposing, the sort of realist view I'm opposing, locks us all into private mental worlds where what's, where what's really happening with me, whether I'm really in pain, only I can know. You can observe all the reactions, but you, you could say, well, he's got all the reactions, but who knows, maybe he's not in pain after all. I don't like that. I, I, I find that, um, I think it's a, a bad sort of metaphysics of mind. And I also think it's a quite um, strange and solipsistic way of thinking of, of, of other creatures. I know when, 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 when my cat is in pain, I can see that he's in pain. I don't need to- Because it's shifting. Because so what about like like those states of consciousness like meditation and people who are like taking off the glass of perception and look at it and then yeah. put it back and then you can be in pain and not reacting to it oh you, you, you well yeah i mean there are ways of i guess there's they are dissociating various reactions and dissociating from some of the reactions um but my, my thought is more that if you observe another another person or another animal carefully enough and you know it well enough you can tell when it's in pain because you can tell how the world is impacting upon it and that's what pain is it's being impacted okay um, so this brings up the, the point yes. which i want to get to which is uh you say that if you seem to be aware of something scientifically inexplicable <laughs> it is more likely that you are misperceiving or misinterpreting something I think that's a that's a scientifically explicable yes, so I there is that. something there so so but this this brings in science somehow or 
some kind of um, notion of third point of view. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's a pretty sound principle that if you think you've your um, what you're observing now with your uh, unaided observation you know, is something scientifically inexplicable, then you're probably wrong. Um, I can't think of really any counterexamples to that. If you go to a magic show and see somebody levitating and you think they're levitating, you're wrong. I mean, it's the most obvious inference. Uh, and we kind of accept it in all sorts of weird th weird ways. The obvious one, I suppose, is about um, about color. If you think that the color is is in a sense really out there objectively on the on the the the, 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 the book or whatever, then well, kind of science has told you you're wrong about it. But that. isn't it like it's almost like a tautology for me? Mm -hmm. Because first-person experience by design is not observable. It's not the scope. The science never wants to go there because it's not in its scope. The science well, is restrictive in that sense. Well, you could say that. You can certainly say, look, um, you could say something like this. Uh, I observe this world around me. And in all of, and in all of these observations of the world around me, I defer to, to, to science. Like, so I, I, I look and I see the sun moving through the sky and it certainly seems to me that the sun is orbiting the earth and I would be pretty sure about that if, 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 if I would just, if I didn't know better. But science tells me I'm wrong, that it's, it's just an effect of my, my, where I'm uh, located, this perspective effect. And similarly, science, it, we pretty much defer to science about every observation we make about the world. We admit that we could be wrong about that. Okay, so why should it be any difference different with the observations we make about ourselves if we are just parts of the world? Why should we have some? I mean, sure, I'm going to know a good deal more about myself because I'm closer to myself and I spend a lot more time with myself than I do with other people. But that doesn't mean I'm going to be infallible about myself. I mean, I could spend a lot of time looking at the sun, you know, watching the sun every day, but it wouldn't mean that I had a greater insight into its real nature. Um, you know, the stars look like little pinpricks in the canopy of heaven. They're actually giant nuclear, um, you know, plasma, huge plasma balls billions of miles away. Science tells us what they are. I notice that I'm in this state that I call pain, and that is a, you know, I'm, I'm noticing something just as I'm noticing a star or the sun, but I'm, doesn't mean I've had deep insight into what it really is. And I should, and if I say, if I say banging the table, look, I have insight, deep insight into the nature of pain. It's revealed to me introspectively what it is. And I can tell you now that it is not what you, Keith, are saying. It is a complex of sensitivities and reactions, aversive reactions. It is something, it is a pure qualitative field that cannot be explained in scientific terms that presents a hard problem. Then I say, you sure about that? What gives you that sort of epistemic authority, even over yourself? I can see why it might seem to you like that. And I grant you, I grant you that it seems to you like that. It seems like that to me. I grant that it seems that the sun's moving. It seems so. I mean, in, meaning that I'm inclined to judge that very strongly. But maybe I'm wrong. And maybe there's a good reason why I'm wrong. Maybe there's a good reason why the brain self-monitoring systems create that sense. Mm -hmm. Exactly. That's why, illusion, that's why illusion is a term I like. There's a good reason why the colors seem to be out there rather than, the, the whole point about color vision is to enable us to discriminate stuff in the world. That's what it's for. Um, it's not gonna present uh, the deep picture of reality to us. It's gonna paint a shallow picture of reality that captures the distinctions we need to make. And the same is gonna go with introspection. It's gonna be no more free from illusion than perception is, provided the illusions are adaptive. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, they, okay. I I got this. So it's there's no difference there between interception and perception.
I think that's I think that's a key, a key point that if you it's in a way illusion I mean accepting that this principle that we should I guess defer to science is, is simply saying look I'm not saying that science can answer everything I'm certainly I want to say that science can't tell you much about I guess about historical events for one thing I mean, exactly that was my example like if yeah. I listen to Beethoven's fifth or yeah. being Floyd dark side of the moon and I get goosebumps and uh that kind of thing i'm not looking for science to explain it you no know, there's loads of stuff that science and, and there may be stuff that's you know that, i mean that, that, that's completely outside science for it's science's remit i just don't think that the human mind is one of them um i think the human mind is a very very <laughs> hugely complex evolved biological system which has given its possessors a unique perspective on the world and on themselves which they tend to um misinterpret as it were they tend to uh, as it were that's inflate their own special they are very special we are very special creatures so are all living creatures but maybe we just tend to inflate our specialness a little bit and give it a metaphysical dimension that it doesn't really have and that it doesn't need to have to have the significance that it has because the significance I mean, comes from the like the dollar the significance comes from what we do with our selves and experiences the significance doesn't come from sitting sort of looking at a yellow patch and thinking how on earth could this be physical the significance comes from engaging with yellow things and talking about yellow yeah, things and, do, do stuff yeah yeah and singing yeah. songs about yellow submarines and also that's where <laughs> the the meaning comes it's it's when we try and isolate it from its context from the dynamic context and think of it as something intrinsic and mysterious so <laughs> I warned you that I would I would tend to go off on the um, No, I mean it's all good. I like it. Uh, yeah, it went, went, my understanding went somewhere. One reason I like the term illusionism, and, and I know, lots and lots of people say to me, I, I like the position when you describe it, but I don't like the term illusion. And I say yes, but you wouldn't have let me do the you wouldn't have let me do the explanation if I hadn't used the term. Because if I just come up and said, look, I've got a theory of consciousness. Do you want to hear it? They'd say, yeah, everybody's got a theory of consciousness. What's special about you? If I say it's called illusionism, they go, what? What are you saying? <laughs> Tell me what you mean. It's marketing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, look, I, I have uh, sure. some I, points. I keep derailing you. Uh, no, I think, uh, I mean, I, I, I have a lot of notes on, on your slides, but I think we covered it more or less. But I do have some, sure. maybe, you know, we do a, a movement of going a little bit up yeah. and, and look at yeah. illusionism as a way of life or something. Oh, like right. that. So, yes, good. So, yes. so let me start with, uh, because you mentioned both Nagel and Dennett, and you mm. know, Nagel wrote a critique on Dennett's new book. Yes. And yes. I just, I just uh, took one paragraph out of this, mm. uh, which says that, when I bite into a chocolate bar, I get pleasant taste sensation of a particular subjective quality. It seems undeniable that in having it, I am aware of the real quality of this experience. But that is just what Dinah denies. So we agree on this, that you and Dinah denies it. Mm, yes, I mean, what's happening, I mean, it's a conflation of kind of two different ways of talking about it there's the okay. everyday way of talking about it i bit into the chocolate bar and it, it had a lovely delicious sweet taste of course that's how we talk that's our way of that's our folk psychological if you like uh, way that's our way of communicating with each other way of using mentalistic discourse to share information about 
things in the world and how they affect us and so on. Yeah, that's fine. Moving from that to saying the experience had an intrinsic quality to it, whose nature was, whose essence was revealed to me. And it was revealed to me as not being some kind of functional state that some, as I keep using this uh, state of complex sensitivity to features of the world and, and, and a, 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 a whole bunch of reactions to them. And the reactions are important here because we will each have diff slightly different reactions to the same stimulus, which will give it, as it were, its own distinct flavor for us. Uh, associations, memories, um, uh, all kinds of, we are being, to that taste of chocolate, we each bring our own unique take Okay? But it's a take, a take of something in the world, not a presentation of some quality to us. It's us latching onto that quality and going, I sort of vibrate in this way in response to that quality. It causes this distinct pattern of goosebumps and things. <laughs> uh, and that's my take on it. And that's an active taking of the thing. Now, the experience doesn't reveal that it, to us that it's that rather than some passive presentation of a quality of an intrinsic quality of the experience that is now, uh, it doesn't reveal this to us. And we can conceptualize it in either way. This is the point. And if we conceptualize it in the first way, we have a hard problem. If we conceptualize it in the second way, we have a bunch of very difficult, easy problems. And I think the way to make progress with understanding consciousness is okay. to choose the path full of very difficult, easy problems, rather than the path of a very, as it were, very simple, but insoluble problem. But let me just continue because because I think the, there is a word there that I want to bring in. Mm -hmm. The next sentence says that he denies the authority of the first person viewpoint yes. over our consciousness, uh, over what our consciousness conscious experiences are really like. Yeah. Though he does not deny that we believe we have experiences with these qualities. So is this how you see that 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 you deny the the authority of the first person view over it, the third it person what view? What sort of authority we're talking about? If it's the authority of everyday discourse about your experience, of course you you know you tell me you're in pain, you're in pain. I'm sure you are. You're under, you're in that state we call pain. Um, if you tell me that the chocolate's sweet, I'll you know I'll know what to expect when I try it. Of course I accept all this. It's doing it's you know I accept the dollar in doing its everyday work of exchange. If you tell me that you know the essence of that state and that it's something that is inexplicable, it's, it's it belongs to a metaphysically private world that's, to which science has no act, which objective ob uh, um, um, uh, inquiry has no possible access. Oh, I know, do you really? Um, could you be wrong about that? Just like if you tell me, I know the value, the dollar has an intrinsic value. I know it has something that the, that the, the I was going to say the franc there for some reason, that the euro doesn't have. Well, I'm going to say, no, I think that's a theory you're imposing on it. I think that maybe seems, I, maybe that's, maybe there's the good reasons why it seems that way to you. As I said, the dollar does seem to have a potency for Americans that other currencies don't because they're used to using it. And experience seems to have a potency for us, which we capture in this language. But the idea that we, and so I, I will put it more like this, that our reports, that our experience reports are more expressive they're expressions of the state we're in, like ow, okay? Now, ow isn't right or wrong. It's an expression of, it's, it is itself one of, the, one of the reactions, okay? So saying ow, and indeed, my cat expresses its pain very well to me. If, um, if it, it hurts itself, it, I, I, it expresses it beautifully. Mm. So now, 
are the ex I'm not saying, oh, <laughs> your owl was inappropriate there. You're not really, of course not. Your owl, you're in pain and you're reacting in pain. I can see that. If you say I'm in pain and pain is, a, is again, one of these essentially private qualities that can never be explained in scientific terms, well, that's not an expression of pain. That's a theory you've got about it that, um, that may be wrong. So it's different levels. I'm certainly not, I mean, it's another metaphor that another person here that, that, that again, that Dennett uses, it's like fiction. If you tell me a story, I don't question it because you're authoritative about the, what the story is. If you tell me a narrative about your own experience, I don't question it because that's how you're constructing your own experience. That's how it all appears to you. And if it appears that you have this world inside you that is utterly private and uh, scientifically inexplicable, well, that's how it seems to you, that's good. It doesn't follow you right, though. Okay. I was already mentioning this, this distinction for me between the useful and non-useful, so I'm not going there. <laughs> But we can, like, I have some maybe two or three um, higher level questions. Like, uh, how did you become an illusionist? Yeah. What was the path and what were the experiences that pushed you in this way instead of like the psychist way? You see, is another thing that interests me when when i'm asked questions like this i don't really know what to say i can i can make up a story a kind of narrative that would have elements of of, of um of truth in it but um might be 50 percent fiction I, I really don't know i i don't know how uh, i think probably one of the one thing that's always struck me is how much of a mystery my own mind is to me the more i reflect on it I've always been a fairly introspective sort of person. I mean, people say that I'm, maybe I'm a zombie and I don't have an inner life. No, no, I have too vivid an inner life. That's the problem. And so I reflect on it a lot. And I remember doing this from a child. I remember having experiences as a child that were quite dissociative, dissociative when I would actually seem to be outside my own body. Uh, quite vivid ones. And I suppose they could have taken me in different directions. They might have taken me in a very different direction, but the direction they took me in was, I don't really know what's happening in here at all. I don't understand it. I'm telling stories about it. I'm trying to make sense of it. I'm trying to make sense of who I am, what I am and how I fit into the world. And so I took a great interest in um, reading stuff about this. And without, I don't think I'm a, people have accused me of being a sort of scientistic person who defers you know, I think science is the fount of all knowledge. That's not that's not really me at all. I'm, I'm I, my early uh, education was much more in the humanities, and I'm much. More, I mean, you know, I write poetry, and I'm interested. And I love poetry, and I love theatre, and I love these things. And so, but science seemed to be the only thing that was giving me any sort of insight into these puzzles about myself, and things would click when I, uh, and I read psychology and then I read neuroscience. I think, yeah, this is helping to give me a framework for thinking about these puzzling things that makes sense, that's illuminating. That's instead of being trapped in this 
prison of how things how, how things seem to me, I can now start to see some of the machinery working behind the scenes. Okay. So I love this metaphor of the of the stage magic because there's so much machinery behind the scenes and it's so clever and it's so beautifully organized to create precisely to create a certain effect and the effect is for a reason it's for the audience and the theater and the, so the effects created on us it's because there's you know, um, they, 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 they uh, enhance our fitness they help us survive and, and thrive and so it's trying to but do you, behind do you feel the cheated there pardon do you feel cheated in a stage magic performance well this is interesting isn't it because we always do sort of feel cheated when we see the, the mechanism because we loved the effect and I, I think this is a bit like seeing the brain is like seeing the the, the machinery that's the what pulleys and the wires and the things that are that are producing the great effect but the effect is still there it doesn't take away the effect that it wasn't produced by by actual magic I mean in a way if it had been produced by actual magic it would also be um disappointing because there was nothing to explain it was just magic it was just done by fiat that was it well he flew end of to find out that it was done by human ingenuity and contrivance and very very clever ways of distracting our attention so that it would have precisely the right effect on us that is much more intriguing i mean what yes. we and I, I could compare it to music uh-huh yes yes i i, I you mean that once you understand about music it, theory, but there's no no uh, it, it's an, it's it's a different mechanism because there's no uh, I think musicians don't have this desire to um, to trick you yes but they want to be yeah, but but it's it's about the effect yes it's it about the effect insane, yeah. and that is all that evolution cares about the effect it will use any means at its disposable at its disposal to produce the right effect, the right sort of selectional effect. And if producing an effect, if making you think that you have a private inner world or something is, is adapt adaptive, it will do that. I mean, there it's actually uh, Nicholas Humphrey, the psychologist Nicholas Humphrey. I don't know if you know his, his work. He has a wonderful series of books. I particularly like Soldus, but he has a new book just out called Sentience. Um, he's a bit wary of the term illusionist, but I, I think he is an illusionist, really. And he argues that, that, that evolution selected for these mechanisms that make us feel we are metaphysically special, that we have uh, uh, this magical world of qualities inside us, because that gave us a, an enhanced interest in life, uh, an enhanced feeling of our own value and of the value of other people. And that it actually is, is, is an adaptive evolved feature, it evolved precisely for the effect. And uh, so in a way, we, we evolved to, to think of ourselves as creatures who pose a hard problem. Um, so yeah, so getting back to it, yes, and, and so when, and when I start, I mean, I, when I read Dennett's work, uh, I remember being immediately captivated and thinking, this is, this is someone who sees it the way I want to see it, but sees it more clearly than I've ever been able to. And so um, I, was, I was pretty much hooked. I mean, I did toy around with more conventional sort of physicalist ideas. But I came to see that that was, in a way, the, 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 the anti-physicalists were right about that. You can't have your, you know, your qualia cake and eat it at the same time. You've got to make a decision here. If these things are, if you're, if you're, real, if you're a realist about these things, then really you've got to just do metaphysics on them. You can't do science on them because you can't do science on a private, private subjective world. Uh, and since science seems to be the, and 
in any case, it seems like it's the much the more fruitful line of inquiry. Let's try unpicking, uh, try peeking behind the curtain and seeing what mechanisms are there and see if that removes our sense of puzzlement and mystery, rather than just saying, no, you can't remove the sense of puzzlement and mystery. You've got to just do metaphysics. You've got to have a dualism of of uh, uh, physical and non-physical, and you've got to have pantheism, whatever. What, well, that's just kind of giving up on any further explanation. It's saying the effect is the effect. End of. Just accept it. Do you think there is an issue on uh, if if it's an illusion, perception, interception, extraception? There is this illusory aspect of it. Is that we still have to decide on what's real or what's not to survive. So we do have to have a mechanism that sort of like rank orders the illusionary effect or something like that, like especially the ones that are important for the survival. Well, the, the, the illusions, oh, that's, <laughs> evolution's, I think, done a lot of that for us. That, that the reason that, 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 think that it, it distorts and simplifies and caricatures things in a way that's for an adaptive advantage. We don't seem to read, presumably for good evolution reasons, we don't need to. We see the, the, the spectrum we do because that's where the salient the differences are that, that matter to us. So it's kind of, it's already done that. Um, we, we live, this is what, you know, what Sellers called the manifest image, the world that we live in, the world of this, this, I mean, don't build too much into illusion. We might say distortion, caricature, fiction, whatever. It's the world that uh, evolution has created for us, that we inhabit. And it is the real world filtered and selected for our benefit. Okay, so it's you know it's it's serving to lock us onto things that, uh, that that are important for us and to enable us to get around. And if int if introspection is doing this too, presumably it's for it's maybe it's for good reasons, or it could be that that um, uh, the our sense of uh, the, the hard problem is just a our sense of there being a hard problem is just a side effect of other. Um, functions of self-monitoring. I mean, it's like exactly. yeah, yeah, yes. I mean, yeah. it just reminds me to Mark Mark Solms, uh, argument is that we should go to pain and, and primary effects more than to vision. I think that's right. I'm, 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 I, I, I think that's right. I mean, it's far too much emphasis in the. Um, I think in the philosophical literature, I'm focusing on very simple things like visual examples, like staring at a yeah, exactly. color. Because vision can be unconscious for sure. Pain. Oh, well, I think pain, it's not a feeling. That's what I think. Saying. Well, yes, but that's that's maybe just a semantic point. I mean, I think pain. Um, mm. well, it depends on what sense. <laughs> I'm coming back again to this notion of what we mean by conscious, conscious, consciousness, and it's it's. Um, I think I, I don't think there'd be an awful lot of damage done if we replace consciousness with awareness. Replace the word consciousness with awareness, mm. because it's very easy to see what the function of awareness is and why creatures would be aware of various things. It's very easy to see that you need to look for the, the processes, the mechanisms involved. It's very easy to understand that awareness will be selective and partial and distorting. And what do we miss out? Um, yeah. So, I mean, I think you can probably be in pain without being aware that you're in pain. Um, you might just, um, well, it, it can it can be a semantic, but if you want to say that that, that something only counts as pain if, if you're aware of it, then of course you can say that. But um, there's lots of cases where most of the reactions associated with pain are occurring, but you aren't paying attention to them perhaps because um, mm -hmm. 
you you know you, you something else even more significant has happened to you um perhaps you've you know, just seen a well, yeah that's that's what martin says about the function of consciousness it's to it's to make decisions on the exactly on the on the organization organism level mm -hmm. so yeah. anything that can be handled by yeah. some subsystem yeah. doesn't get there absolutely no, I, I, I really like to try to persuade him to. I think I, think I might be. I don't know. I'll see. So I, I have one last question. Sure. You mentioned that you had this the depersonalization experience mm. when you were a child, mm. and so people have different types of experiences. What comes into mind, for example, is uh, Bernardo Kastrup's uh, dissociation uh, theory of idealism, which. I don't know for sure, but it probably comes from a personal experience too. So I see that there are a lot of different types of experiences people have that can push them or guide them or bring them to different types of thoughts about mm -hmm. philosophy, metaphysics and consciousness. So since it's first personal, I thought about like we could have a sort of Popperian falsifiability question on first person type for first person type is that can you imagine any experience that you go through which would change your mind about illusionism? Well, it do you mean rationally change my mind or change my mind by its not like, like people people change their stance in their life it's usually called like self-transformation or self-transcendence people start meditating they get to like a non-dual state or something or they, they they experience stuff that profoundly change who they are and what they think so that's why i'm asking this because it's a question it's it's i mean it, it's it's sort of like a made-up thing i didn't mm. think it through, but it, it's similar to, to Popper's falsifiability mm. argument about science that we can only state stuff, things that we can imagine an experiment for if it's falsifying it. I could certainly see things that would that would change my mind about it. Um, I'm not sure that just the reflection on first person ex experience would change it. If I had seen, I'd say, some very powerful psychedelic experience or something, I don't think that would change. I mean, it might during the course of it. But afterwards, reflecting on it, I don't think it would change it because I've always been puzzled about the nature of experience. I had some pretty weird migraine experiences in which I, I felt extremely disso sort of dissociated and uh, and strange. And they didn't change my. Um, in fact, if anything, they reinforced it and just showed me just how how strange and fragmented introspection could become. What would change my mind on it, I think, is 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 some um, is some empirical evidence. Um, suppose we could suppose that uh there are qualia and suppose they have as some phenomenal realists believe um distinctive causal powers so uh qualia cause things to happen that wouldn't otherwise have happened you know, that can't be explained in terms of the simply in terms of the um uh, neural processing so if there was some evidence of that of say large-scale changes in the brain that couldn't be explained in terms of the, the the, the 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 activity of the component neurons that would change everything i think if we if, the, if there are evidence for non-physical effects in the brain then 
That, that, then, but then, uh, then that, it's then, outside that, the scope of science in Bavaria. I understand. Well, no, it, they, they, they would be detectable. I mean, we, we've scientists were saying, look, there's some force at work in the brain. There's something that's that's shifting um, neural activity in ways that we can't explain in terms of the constituent the patterns of firing and the constituent neurons or whatever it might be. You know, mm. We just can't explain in terms of the resources available to us, and we don't see any way of doing it. There's something outside the system that's interfering somehow. Well, that would certainly be, that would certainly shake my faith that science was going to reveal um, all the workings because it would imply that there was genuine magic occurring from, from, the, from, the, from that perspective. So yes, I mean, if, I mean, just as if I went to a, uh, to, to a, to a magic show and uh, you know, was allowed to inspect behind the, uh, the curtains and to, to, to go onto the stage and exp uh, do all the investigations I wanted. And after um, the sort of hours and hours of being playing James Randi, I couldn't find anything, then I might, I might start to change my mind, but I don't anticipate that happening. But I don't think mere experience would. It might, it could have such a cycle, such an emotional effect on me that I felt I could no longer go on holding this view for emotional reasons or something like that. But then I suppose that could happen to pretty much any view I have that, um, that trauma could, 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 could unseat it. Um, but, uh, I just, I mean, Dennett in a commentary uh, on the first piece, I wrote, the piece I wrote introducing the term illusion, the position has been around for a long time, but I introduced the term illusion in um, illusionism. In a piece he wrote, he called it the obvious default theory of consciousness. Yeah, I don't think And that. I think that's why, I mean, uh, why not explore the obvious before you... Um, before you so, that obviousness is rooted in, in personal experience. This is my theory. Well... What's, there's what nothing you find that, obvious and I find obvious. Is it's, it's important to understand that this the, the perspective that, 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 that Dennett and I have doesn't discount personal reports. It doesn't say ignore what people are telling you. It says, no, absolutely not. They are vital data. Listen to people. Tell your expression of how it is with you. Your account of what's happening is incredibly valuable data. Let me have it in as much detail as possible. Indeed, let's do tests where we show you ambiguous images and all sorts of things and, and get you to, to, to test the boundaries of, 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 um, of your experience. And let's push it and let's get all of this detail. But what, and it's all tremendously useful and doubtless we'll get lots of insights from it. But we don't just take it as a transparent report from another reality. <laughs> okay? It's an expression of... This is how this, this system is telling us about itself. And this is how the, the, the system strongly feels it wants to tell us about itself. Okay, and that's incredibly important information about how the system's working, and what's going on in it, but it's not reveal a revelation of its actual workings. You know, it's, 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 it's the effect that its brain is creating on it. And it's telling us about the effect. It's more like the reports from the audience in the theater than uh than than um uh, um uh than the story i'm not quite sure what the matter is. but it's what you tell us about yourself is what the audience in the theater tells us about what they see on stage mm -hmm. and that's very important for understanding what's happening on stage because if you understand how they saw it you might understand why it was the way it was because it was designed to make them see it that way so maybe the reason 
the performance stage moved in a certain way was precisely so that people would be distracted from that, this, and focus on that. So that gives you clues as to what to look for when you're trying to understand what's happening. Mm -hmm. So the report, and, and there's no question of saying to the people on in the audience, no, you're wrong, you didn't see that. You think that that's what you observe. They are your honest, sincere observation reports, and I take them, you know, I don't challenge you about them for a moment, but you might not have deep insight into what was really happening. Okay, well, thank you very much, Keith. It was uh, <laughs> awesome in the classical sense of the word. Uh, 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 I, I have, so I usually ask my guests at the end of the podcast oh. to ask me a question. Ah, right. Well, I, I, have, a, I have a question that I, I'm asking all, all people I know who work in AI. This is, this is an exciting and somewhat frightening time. I think um, we're seeing rapid changes, rapid developments that are going to change the way in which we live. I think I think AI is going to permeate our lives much more deeply in the coming years. It's going to how we interact with each other, how we learn about the world, how we act in the world is all going to be shaped and permeated and uh, to some extent perhaps controlled by AI. And that can I suppose that could seem very exciting because it will extend our powers and our possibilities in the way that social media extends our uh, uh, capacities for interaction. But it also can seem frightening, very frightening, that algorithms are going to be manipulating our our interactions with each other in ways that we don't pursue, that we don't know. We don't know. Um, it's going to be shaping what we see and what we think and how we express ourselves. And are you? <laughs> okay, so big question. How do you feel? Are you enthusiastic? Are you frightened? Um, how do you see? How is, how are things going to going to? How is what are the effects going to be? Well, thank you very much for for the question. The thing is, the effects. Probably you need more social science background, theology, psychology. For answering that and most mm -hmm. of us in IT don't have that background and so I mean most of I mean I was I was uh, pulled into this domain for understanding the brain you know if I can engineer it like then then I understand it uh, Feynman yes like FM Feynman said this and so that's like a scientific goal mm -hmm. through engineering means. A lot of us got into this. I'm, 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 I can't talk for, for the younger generation, but mm -hmm. those of us who started in the 90s, that was a big motivation. And on the effects, I'm, I'm, I'm just an observer as you are. Yeah. And I personally am not afraid of the, the, the Armageddon, the doom, the extinction level mm -hmm. AI, even because I think those stories are... It's not that they don't make sense, they are stories. They have their internal logic. Yeah. But they don't really... And I don't even have guarantees that they don't, don't work. So this is sometimes people ask me about this. Uh, usually, you know, the 
the, the, the debate goes in that direction. Like, what is what is your argument? Show me that it's zero probability that it will go that way. And I don't have, you know, this like it's history. You, you cannot predict the future, you know. Uh, I, I usually say that painting this scenario was make them more probable because they, these are not forecasts, these are prophecies right. that sometimes implement themselves in weird ways. You fight against them and that's mm -hmm. how you implement them, like Greek tragedies, right? Mm -hmm. But I, I, I see, uh, you, you know that, that Max Legmark had this uh, river and uh, cascade metaphor in the Monk debate where we are all in this river, in this boat on the Niagara, Niagara River and the, the fall will happen for sure and we are not doing anything, we should stop. And uh, I think there are, even if it's there, and even if, you know, life is a river, which I don't think, it's, it's more like something that goes, there are branches there, you know, that we can, with our car, like a collective free will, we can navigate. Uh, but even if it's there, there are a lot of rocks between here and there, you know, and we should take care of them first. So, so one of the things I usually say is that the first encounter with AI is not GPT, it's the social media accommodation systems, yeah. including YouTube uh, algorithm, yeah. but especially on the newer ones like TikTok, yeah. that uh, eat the brain of the new generation. So yeah. those are more bigger dangers than the Armageddon. Yeah. And again, not from my AI researcher point of view, but as a human being, what I can say there is that these we, these are these are part of our realities like money and we react to those and they are very they can be very harmful like they can make you addicted yeah. but there's always you in there in that process you can get addicted and then you realize it and then you get rid of it and then something good can come out of it so i always tell this story about me and facebook because i got hooked on cage fights yeah. three years ago. It, it took me two, three years to, to understand that this is like a bad addiction. Every night I was looking at MMA and just, you know, swiping the, the videos. And I deleted Facebook from my phone and I went to down to in the dojo to try it because some, somehow I figured out that that experience that I had with social media and with this algorithm, which is super it's, it finds the, the subconscious desires that yeah. you have at, you know, in the evening when your frontal lobe is already sleeping. <laughs> you can use that history as a gene and you can <laughs> analyze it in, in therapy and figure out what they mean about what you really want. Yeah. And so, so, so it's, you, you can use, for example, TikTok. Or, or Facebook in this way, in like a therapeutic tool, if oh, you want. So every harmful AI, usually people don't design them to be harmful, first no, of all. So no, they no. always have like a good good yeah. site. They design for something that people think good and people buy because they need it or they like it. Mm -hmm. The bad side is always also have a good side. So you can always, you know, make yourself stronger when you, you yeah interact with them the, the the danger for me is the is the speed yeah yeah and on the speed 
Well, right now we are definitely in a, in a rapidly changing area. So these years I don't see slowing down, although on the language modeling side, we exhausted the data. <laughs> so if improvements come, they will come from the algorithmic side. And I don't think there is much there in sight. Mm -hmm. But then there are there will be a lot of changes. I mean, uh, OpenAI had the, their, their um, opening uh, a couple of days ago, where they 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 build an ecosystem around ChatGPT that that can that you know destroys a lot of startups because they were building those things, and then yeah. it changes very fast. So what so, so people are are you know can get exhausted in, in, in terms of like the new tools and the, the, the ways we have to change and adapt, etc. So, so that's, a, that's, that's, that this I see also like a psychological danger of uh, being overwhelmed by the speed. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the real change in terms of like consciousness or artificial consciousness or, or even AGI will not happen before we start to embody these algorithms when they all, they will also need this capacity of survival and being aware as you yeah. say i mean chat gpt is not aware of anything because it doesn't have no. an existence in the physical sense right so and that research the embodiment research let's say robotics or putting mm -hmm. ai into things it's much much slower yeah because it's physical you know yeah. like a robot falls and breaks and then it's a month of repair and twenty thousand dollars. You know? So it's a, it's a research that goes much much slower. Yeah. And so in that sense, uh, I think the pace will be humanly followable. Well, I, I, I think one 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 thing that that um, that gives me some encouragement is to see people like yourself who are working in AI, but are starting wider conversations, such as in this podcast i think we need to have really serious conversations in society about what's happening and we need we need to understand what's happening we need a wider understanding of how these how the new technology works and understanding of what it's both its benefits as well as its um, um dangers we need to have more and more intelligent informed conversation about this and so thank you for 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 for, for doing this i i i, I uh, applaud what you're doing and i uh, hope you yeah, do any more you, of thank, thank you for the encouragement yeah i agree completely and it's especially i i i believe in a style of conversation which is not confrontative or yes not yes the goal is not to to destroy the other with Absolutely. arguments but but more understanding empathy even that's why I'm Absolutely. trying to go always into the personal experience because I'm trying to look for like what did make you what Absolutely. you are, you know. Like, Absolutely. Uh, we can't have constructive conversations about our differences where then then the future is very bleak indeed. And um so we must keep that that flame alive, I guess. Okay, thank you very much, Keith. It's a it's a really nice uh, well, thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Finish it, it and, uh, thank you. Bye. Bye.